G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. When Jesus finally shows up at Jairus' house, what's happened? She's dead. But he comes into the house, you know what he says? He says, what's all the commotion? She's just asleep and I'm here to wake her up. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff is continuing to look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21, where Jesus brings a girl back to life and heals a sick woman. The characters in this story are forced to wait and we do a lot of waiting in our daily lives. Usually our sense of timing doesn't match up with God's timing. So what do we need to do to be in sync with God? Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now on Today with Jeff Vines. Now, every culture has its own sense of timing. But I loved it when I lived in Zimbabwe and I had a wedding with a Shona bride, which are the indigenous people of Zimbabwe, and a European groom. Because the sense of timing is totally different. And usually, to a European mindset, when does the wedding start? About 15 minutes, fashionably late, when the bride gets there. In the Shona mind, when does the wedding start? Well, it starts when it starts. And the bride, I've been doing weddings, is up to one, two, and three hours late. And I'm the one that comes out on the stage to announce, well, I know it's an hour, but just be patient. I'm assured she's on the way. And I like to go out and look at the contrast because they seat the groom's family on one side, the bride's family on the other. And you can just look out right down the dividing line. And over here on the European side, there are people who are frantic. They're panicking. What's happening? What's going on? And they just, the the world's coming to an end. And on this side, the Shona people, it's like, life's good. I'll have another cup of Tanganda tea with a biscuit. And they could sit there for hours. Two totally different senses of timing. And the first lesson I want you to understand when you're waiting on God is this. God's sense of timing timing seldom conforms to ours. Seldom. In fact, all through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe, trust me, be patient. And then these other two statements, and you young people back there, I want you to make sure you grab hold of this. Like I said, if you can learn this now, it's gonna save you a lot of heartache. All through the book of Mark, you find Jesus saying things like this. My grace and love are compatible with what seems to you to be an unconscionable delay. And he goes on to say later on in the book of Mark that if you impose your understanding of schedule on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. 
Now take that, put it over here to the side. We're going to come back in and get it in a few moments. God's sense of timing seldom conforms to ours. Here's the second lesson. When you go to Jesus, you'll always get more than you ask for. When you go to Jesus and you're waiting, you'll always get more than you ask for. When Jesus finally shows up at Jairus' house, what's happened? Well, she's dead. But he comes into the house, you know what he says? He says, what's all the commotion? She's just asleep and I'm here to wake her up. Now this ticks Jairus' friends off. They, they kind of laugh at Jesus. They say, whoa, I think we know the difference between a dead girl and a sleeping girl. And besides that, if she was just asleep, we'd wake her up. Wouldn't need you. And before I read to you what Jesus says, in reply, remember, Jairus was expecting Jesus to heal his daughter's fever, but he's going to get something far greater than that. Verse 40, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Now see what happened? This is crucial. Jairus came to Jesus expecting a fever cure, but he got a resurrection. That's quite a contrast. Keep that in your mind. Keep it over here with the other. We'll pull them back in in a moment. Here's lesson three. Not only when you go to Jesus do you get more than you thought you were going to get, but when you go to Jesus, you end up giving him more than you expected to give. So here's Jairus. He's hoping he can go outside the city, take Jesus, lead the procession, get him back to his house, and then Jesus take care of the fever. Instead, Jesus looks at Jairus right in the eye and he says this. He says, Jairus, I want you to trust me when it looks really, really bad. I want you to trust me when it appears that all hope is gone. I want you to trust me when it appears that there's nothing else that can be done. Trust me still. That's a huge ask. That is faith far beyond what Jairus had anticipated. The same is true of the sick woman. Wow. The same is true of the sick woman. The sick woman fights her way through the crowd, touches the garment of Jesus, and then hopes that she can just disappear, not be seen or heard or found. But Jesus forces her to come out into the open. Now, now follow me here just a moment. He makes her go from a functional relationship into what we call a full-on relationship. Understand what she was going through. This is all life-threatening for her. You with me? You with me? This is all life-threatening for her. Why? Because when you have an issue of blood like she does, you are declared ceremonially unclean. And to touch a rabbi in that situation is sure death by stoning. Now, Jesus takes a great risk when he actually exposes the woman and says, who touched me? Because she just wants to get out of there and get out of there quickly, but Jesus will have none of it. And here's why. It's because you and I have the same understanding of Jesus oftentimes that this woman had. It's a superstitious understanding of Jesus' power. We think Jesus' power is like open sesame or a four-leaf clover. Say the right things. Memorize the magic formula. Rub the right stuff together. Touch his special garment. And boom! But Jesus wanted her to understand something crucial. You'll find it in verse 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus is saying there's a great difference, folks, between superstition and faith. And he says to the woman, your faith is what made you whole. Faith in my power, faith in my goodness, faith in my care and my love and concern. That's what brought you healing. I am not a good luck charm. I am not a genie in a bottle. I am not something that you run to only when you're in times of trouble. I want a life transforming relationship with you. And that's going to require the same faith you've just demonstrated. 
Now think about it. We pastors see everything. Oh, we do. We do. We see it all. <laughs> so I, I, I see, and it's been this way all through my ministry. I'll see a family come to church for a while because they're in trouble. They'll come to church. Their life will get a little better. And then I won't see them until the next time they're in trouble. And then they'll come for a while. Things will change. And then I won't see them again. And I know what God's doing. Every time they go back out, he's going to frustrate them again. Because he doesn't want you coming and treating him like a genie. Oh, if I do the right things and good deeds, Jesus is going to give me all I want. And then when your life is all good and happy, boom, you're out of here. Jesus says, you keep doing that and I'll just keep frustrating you until you realize what I want is a relationship of faith and trust. No matter what's going on, worship from you, no matter what's happening in your life. And that's going to require some faith. Tim Keller in King's Cross says, if you go to Jesus, he may ask of you far more than you originally planned to give, but he will give you infinitely more than you dare to ask or think. What does he give you that's so great during the time of waiting? He gives you perspective. He, he, he lets you see the world as it really is. Illumination. Your eyes are open to the way things are when you're waiting. Because when you're waiting, you keep praying. And when you keep praying, you keep going deeper in your relationship with God. Don't you think he knows that? Have you ever read a book and you put it down and you thought, man, this is a pretty good book. Ten years later, you come back. Now, some of you who aren't but about 20 probably haven't done this. But we, those of us who are near 50, you come back 10 years later, you read the same book and you think, my goodness, that's like the best book I've ever read. And you've like read it 10 times. Do you know why? Because you're in a different season of life. There's a favorite book that I have by an author named John Ortberg, a wonderful pastor preacher just up in Menlo Park in San Francisco. And he used to be at Willow Creek in Chicago and I followed his ministry because he's such a deep writer. And he's got a book called God is Closer Than You Think, which I recommend to everyone. I went back and read it again. This past week, I was like in the eighth or ninth chapter, I was doing a little research and I came to a part where he said something. I thought, whoa, I don't remember reading that. And the reason I don't remember is because I wasn't in the season of my life that I am now. And you know what he said? Here's this preacher. If anybody should feel significant, it's this guy. And he says that about six years ago, it was the roughest year of his life. And he said, here's why. He says, long-rooted patterns of living for other people's approval and applause came to the surface. Can you imagine living for other people's approval and applause? Young people, please listen. Let me, let me tell you something the rest of us older people know already. If you spend your life trying to please other people and looking for their approval and their significance, you're going to kill yourself. And you're going to die an early death of a heart attack, of stress, because you will never please everybody. Start right now living your life for an audience of one, God, and you will be at peace with yourself. John Ortberg in his book says that he started getting this ball in the pit of his stomach and it was just hurting every day, month after month. And he kept asking God to take it away. And it was a result of his own failures and weaknesses and habits in his life. And remember, this guy is a clinical psychologist, so he should know better. But we're all culpable. We're all susceptible to this kind of thing. And he goes on to say that over time, he began to realize that the pain was doing good in him. It was actually healing him. He says, I became more aware of everything meaningful in life depends on God. It rides on him. I became much more 
aware of my dependency on him, spirituality became really clear. And then he ends by saying, the ball of pain gradually got smaller. It still revisits me from time to time. I never want it, but in a strange way, I realize it brings gifts from God that nothing else does. But he says, there's a strange duality, two sides to pain. It can cause me to wonder where God is as nothing else can. And it can open me up to my dependence on his presence as nothing else can. That's why waiting on God has this duality to it, but it goes farther. If, if that was it, I'd say, okay, that, that doesn't make me feel better. But go on from the disciples' perspective and probably Jairus' perspective. Jesus was committing malpractice by taking care of the woman and ignoring the little girl. But there's something they didn't know. There's information they didn't have. First of all, they didn't know that for Jesus, raising someone from the dead is no more difficult than curing a fever. He can do both with amazing power, but they didn't know that. They also didn't know or see the importance of Jesus moving this woman from a functional relationship to one of deep life transformation. They didn't see that either. Neither did they know what God was going to do through Christ in Jairus' life. Imagine the stories Jairus is going to tell after this happens. He's a synagogue ruler. Don't you think he's going to go back and tell the religious leaders, man, Jesus came to my house. I just wanted him to cure a fever. He raised my daughter from the dead. Man, they couldn't see any of that. Both Jairus and the disciples. They thought Jesus was delaying for no good reason, but they didn't have all the facts. And all I want to say to you, if you think God is committing malpractice in your life, you don't have all the information. And the reality is, if I could hear your story, it probably wouldn't be good for you. Because my personality wants to fix everything. That's why they try to protect me somewhat. Because I can spend all my hours of all my days trying to fix your life. I know it's not my job to do that, but my personality is when there's a need, I want to jump in and make it happen, make it work. But I can't. That's why we have a huge staff here to deal with each area. But sometimes people will catch me back here and out here, and I'm okay with that, but I want to fix it. The other thing is, I wouldn't be good for you because when you told me your problem, here's what I'd say. You're right. I can't believe God won't give you that. What's up with that? That's fair. You just want a strong Christian husband? What's wrong with that? I want a Christian wife. What's wrong? I want children. What's wrong with that? Come on, God. I'd, pro- I'd probably make you even more mad at God. <laughs> but here's what I can tell you. Isn't that somewhat arrogant and self-centered? You and I think the world's all about us and God giving us what we want and need. And God looks at us as people to be used for his purposes and his agenda. So we say, okay, so you're the eternal son of God. You've lived life eternally. You created the universe, but what makes you think you know how I should live my life and the things that are good for me or bad for me better than I do? The call is if God is delaying in some area of your life, I don't know why, but I can tell you what he'd say to you tonight. He'd say, trust me, be patient. I got this. There's information that you don't have. For me, I want to say, well, God, that's all well and good. Just tell me why and I'll be waiting. (laughs) Send me a hologram down that says, Pastor Jeff, you're going to go through this time because blank, 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 fill in the blanks. I'm good. Okay. Oh, that's why. Oh, well, let's go. He never does that. You go back to the book of Job. It used to bother me for many years why God never even addressed Job's question. Doesn't even address the why. He just gives Job that series of 64 questions. But the more I read it, the more I realize that in it, God is doing something grand. In the questions, he's making statements. You know people who do that? 
And the statements are this. He's trying to reveal to Job the kind of God God is. So he says something like this. It's beautiful. Job, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Now that means little to you, but these lines would jump off the page in Job's day because life in Israel was dependent on water and rainfall. So Job's question is going to be this. Why would God water a land where nobody lives? And the answer that God is trying to express to Job is because God is a God of gratuitous goodness. He is uncontrollably generous. He's irrationally loving. He's good for the sake of being good. He's good because that's just what he does. Good stuff. So he sends streams of living water flowing out of sheer exuberant generosity. There's a wilderness where nobody lives and yet it's full of beauty and grace because God makes a river run through it. He says, Job, as a matter of fact, I even delight in animals that are of real no use, that are of no good use to anybody. Consider the ostrich. <laughs> it looks goofy. She flaps her wings as if she's going to fly. She's not going anywhere. And she lays her eggs and forgets where she put them. <laughs> she doesn't seem to be worth the investment. But here's what the Bible says. God says to Job, God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Now, he's not talking about your mother-in-law. This is the ostrich. <laughs> Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. In other words, she's so fast, man. She goes right by the horse. Woo, right by the horse. Why would God waste all this talent on an ostrich? God says to Job, I made the behemoth, which most scholars believe to be a hippopotamus. When I lived in Africa, my father-in-law took me to Lilongwe, which is a, a kind of a game park. And we camped up on the river. And at night, when the sun goes down, you hear this. You know what that is? It's the hippopotamuses down on the river, relieving themselves and taking their tails and splashing it all over the river and on the banks. Cool picture, huh? right? That's, that's the hippopotamus. And God says about the hippopotamus in Job 4, 20, uh, 40, 24, can anyone capture him when he's on the watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? Why you'd want to pierce his nose? I got no idea. But the ancient world considered the hippo a chaotic monster that need to be destroyed. But you know what God says about the hippo? I can't believe this. Job 38, 19, he ranks first among the works of God. Do you know what God is saying here to Job? I had my A game going when I made the hippo. <laughs> All the pistons were firing. Everything came together. Creative genius. Look at the hippo. <laughs> he goes on to say to Job, he delights in the wild ox that will never plow. He delights in the wild donkey that will never be tamed. <laughs> the mountain goats that will give birth in secret places that man will never see. This whole section in answers to Job's question, why is God explaining to him that God cares for, gives to, delights in animals and creation that aren't good for anything. And why would God mention a world like this? To communicate one primary message to Job. I'm a giver. Look at me, Job. I'm a giver. I mean, I give good gifts everywhere. Look around you, man. To us today, he would say, I gave you my son. That ought to show you I love you. So he says, if you know that I am a God of incredible just insane generosity that gives so many good gifts as you look around, then if I withhold something from you, can you trust me? That maybe I know better. And you know what else he's saying to Job? He's saying, I'm worth it. 
Life following me is worth it. Don't give up. You may not like it. You may not understand it. You may only see the first level, but you don't see what's going on up in heaven with God's ministering angels and the servants and how they're orchestrating and fashioning all these events together in our world and in your life to expand his kingdom on the earth. And if he says no to you or if he makes you wait, if he's doing something in your life, the reality is he's doing something in your life. And he says, since you know I'm a God of great generosity, since you know I am filled with gratuitousness because you know this is who I am, trust me when I withhold something from you. Can you? Now, there's only one way you're going to do that, and it's the end of the sermon. Only one way you'll be able to do that, and it's in Mark chapter 5, verse 40. Jesus goes into the little girl's room, and 41 says, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum. Now, stay with this is it. Really it. When I was uh, growing up, I loved basketball. I still love it, but I'm too old to play it now. Some guys my age still do play, but they're kidding themselves. Because <laughs> your brain, it, it still thinks like when you were 18, but your body takes a full two seconds to react. That's just no good. That's just depressing. And so when I was younger, I loved the game, and I would actually take my Spalding basketball right to bed with me. I'd dribble that thing to school, dribble at home. And these are the days, I don't know if some of you played basketball in high school. Things have changed a lot now. But when I was going to school, and don't worry, it's not an uphill and snow barefoot story, but it, it, is, it is true. I had a very tough coach, and I would go to school until 2.30. I'd get a break from 2.30 to 3.30, and then we practiced basketball from 3.30 till 9. I mean, we were driven. And I would be so tired when I got home. I'd had an hour to do homework, then I'd finally go to bed. And I was really thinking about how much, again, I miss my mom doing this. And even, you know, she did this right up till I was probably 14 or 15. I told you I was a mama's boy, I told you that. And she'd come in in the morning to wake me up for school, and she'd kneel down, grab my hand, and she'd say, sweetheart, remember I'm from the South, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And if I heard her and I made a movement, she would leave and I could smell the biscuits and gravy. <sighs> oh, those were the good old days. And then if I didn't, she'd say, sweetheart, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Jesus goes into this little girl's room. He says two things, Talitha, which means little girl. It's a diminutive term of endearment. It's like our word honey or sweetheart. So Jesus is doing with a little girl what any parent would do with her or his child. He sits down on the bed beside, takes her hand and says, little girl. And then he says, kum, which doesn't mean resurrection. Doesn't mean rise from the dead. It means it's time to get up. Sweetheart, it's time to get up now. Jesus is facing a difficult death the most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race, and such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up through it. And he says, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And I do not believe this is reserved only for the resurrection. This is reserved for you and me now. And I do believe there is a time when God will look at me and say, Pastor Jeff, it's time to get up. You kept the faith. Throughout the, all the anxiety and the fear and the blood pressure going up, 
you kept the faith and you waited patiently and the day will come and I don't know when. I long for it. Oh, do I long for it. Jeff, and I think he would call me Jeffrey because he can do that. (laughs) It's time to get up. I think in your life, if you'll just trust him knowing he's a generous giver, that the time will come when he'll take you by the hand and say, it's time to get up. Time to get on with your life. Let's go. You did well. I'm proud of you. I was doing something. You had no idea what, but it has been accomplished. So it's time to get up. It's time to get up. If you will just wait, if you will just be patient, the day will come and he will say to every one of us that this winter is not going to last forever. Cast all your cares and anxiety on him and the day will come that he will lift you up and you will look back and say, man, I can't believe what all God did all through that. It's time to get up. Father, I thank you for the power of your word in Mark chapter five. I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace that's so exorbitant, matched and maybe even exceeded by your goodness to us in all shapes and sizes of nature, creation, of life and love, of food and enjoyment and recreation, all those great gifts that you give to us. And I would pray right now in Jesus' name that if there's anybody in the room who has been waiting for so long that you would minister to them through your Holy Spirit and you would remind them the day is coming, that you own this situation and it has not caught you off guard, that you know exactly what you're doing and you call us to trust you on the basis of what we do know, that you are a good and giving God, that we can trust you for those things we don't understand and allow your work to finish its course knowing that someday soon you will say it's time to get up let's go we thank you and praise you in Jesus name that's the end of Pastor Jeff's message waiting on God and we heard about Jesus bringing a girl back to life and healing a sick woman Hopefully there was something in there for you to apply to your life. Next time, we'll have another message like this in the Remarkable series. Here's a taste of what's to come. And I know what God's doing. Every time they go back out, He's gonna frustrate them again. Because He doesn't want you coming and treating Him like a genie. Oh, if I do the right things and good deeds, Jesus is gonna give me all I want. And then when your life is all good and happy, boom, you're out of here. Jesus says, you keep doing that and I'll just keep frustrating you until you realize what I want is a relationship of faith and trust no matter what's going on. Worship from you, no matter what's happening in your life. That's going to require some faith. With Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 